0: What a wonderful thing to hear the truth of Jesus Christ from these children. Sometimes it takes children to open up adults to the truth of God. Amen? To hear it, to believe it, it's spoken out of simplicity and yet a true faith. Whatever your background is, you can come to that same true faith this morning. You're watching online. You can come to that same faith, a faith that changes everything if you'll simply give yourself to it today. The gospel is so simple. It's so simple that a child can understand. It's so simple that adults often don't. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came proclaiming the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the good and gracious God. He proclaimed a message of salvation, but it was fended off by those who refuse to believe. And though we are the sinners, all humankind, we are guilty of sin, we nailed him to the cross as if he were the sinner. He died when we should have died. But by the grace of God, he dies in our place. He carries our sin. He takes our sins to the tomb, and then he triumphs over them in the resurrection. And so in the gospel, we learn that Jesus Christ is not some historical figure, but he is the Lord and Savior, the living Lord and Savior. And if you will confess your sins to him, he will forgive you and fill you with the Holy Spirit, that is, with the very life of God. Things can start over for you. A new life can begin if only you will come to Christ in humility and really the flip side of that humility, with faith. That's all it requires. When this service is over this morning, I'm going to be down in the front. Terry Graham's going to be down here with me and I want to invite anyone who wishes to receive Jesus Christ to come forward. We'd like to talk with you and pray with you. If you're online, all you have to do in the comments section is let us know Or in the prayer box, you just click on that and you can let us know that you want to receive Christ and we'll be in touch with you. But that's why we come, is it not? Because we have been touched by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now, we're continuing on in our series, 1 Samuel. This last week, you've been in 1 Samuel 12. If you've already been to Life Group at 8.30, you've been studying from that chapter, we're going to preview next week. That is, I'm going to preach from 1 Samuel chapter 13. And in your Bible reading journal, that's the passage you'll be reading. And then in life groups next week, that's the passage you'll be studying. So you get a head start here Sunday. And we're going to see what we can learn about the life of faith through the example, frankly, the bad example of Saul who is confronted by Samuel for his sin. So let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and read the text starting in verse 5. It says, "The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3000 chariots, 6000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Bethaven." And when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. It's not entirely clear what Saul's disobedience was all about. Some people point to him offering sacrifice and they say, you know, he wasn't a priest. Samuel was the priest, Saul was the king. It wasn't for a king to offer sacrifices. In fact, I can remember a sermon I preached some years ago where that was what I said. Saul wasn't a priest, he had no right to make this sacrifice. The problem is, sometime later, King David offers sacrifice and no one rebukes him for doing it. And King Solomon later still offers sacrifice, and there's no problem with that. So it can't be that that's the problem. I think we simply have to take the words of this text on the face of them saying that Saul knew that he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come, perhaps for Samuel to give him some instructions, but certainly for Samuel to lead in calling on God for God's grace before the battle begins. And Samuel was supposed to offer up the sacrifices on behalf of Israel. He had done the very same thing back in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And at that time, God gave a great victory to Israel. Now, this evidently was a word that came to Saul sometime previous to this time, I suppose, seven days previous to the events we just read about. We're not told in the scripture about that conversation. That is, we don't actually read that conversation we read about this command that was given earlier so saul comes to samuel and he's the prophet and he tells him this is the word of the lord you're to wait for 7 days and then I'll come and then we'll offer sacrifice but saul doesn't wait 7 days instead he goes ahead and offers sacrifice himself he had been given a command, but he refused to obey that command. And that was the reason, Samuel tells him, that his kingdom would not endure. What it means by that is you won't have a dynasty. Your son is not going to take the throne after you. And so Saul sinned against God. Saul is being punished because of his sin. It appears to be a simple case of he has received the word of the Lord and he disobeyed that word. But some people feel like this isn't fair to Saul. After all, he sees the Philistines coming. He sees their huge army. They're mustering for battle, and Saul's own men are beginning to desert. In fact, in the first part of the chapter, we read between Saul and Jonathan, who was second in command, they had 3,000 men ready to fight. By the end of the chapter, they're down to 600. So Saul's army is deserting him at the same time that the Philistines are pressing in. The men around Saul are terrified. They're full of fear. And Saul's afraid that everything's going to fall apart. He has to take action. And so a lot of people read this passage and they say, you know, Saul's sin really wasn't that serious. I mean, what else would you do in a circumstance like that? But we have to remember who Saul was. Saul was the king of Israel he was put on the throne by God himself. God told Samuel the prophet to anoint him as king. And Saul, as king, was to submit to the word of God. If the king doesn't submit to the word of God, everything's going to fall apart. And in fact, we see that in days to come, Saul obeys disobeys again and again. This seemingly small error is the seed of much larger errors. And in fact, we find that the kings who follow Saul frequently ignored the word of God. They frequently ignored the prophets, sometimes persecuting the prophets, sometimes bringing the prophets in and subordinating them to their own royal will. They had so-called court prophets who would tell the kings whatever they wanted to hear. It's a serious thing when a king, someone in power, decides to disobey the word of God. So this was no small sin. But it was inspired by fear, and that's the key point I want you to see this morning. The reason Saul disobeyed was because he was afraid. His men were afraid, and they were fleeing. He was afraid because they were fleeing. You can understand the fear. If you were an objective observer looking from the outside in on that morning, you'd lay a bet that Saul would be dead by morning. So we understand his fear. But it was that fear that led him to disobey, and that is so often the case. We disobey God because we're afraid of consequences. How many secret sins remain secret because we're afraid? How many times do we conform to what family or friends expect of us because we're afraid? How many times do we fail to stand our ground for God because professionally it might cost us? There are so many times in life that through fear we disobey God, and that's what's going on with Saul. Now, you might think fear is a mitigating factor. That is, if you're afraid, then who can blame you for disobeying? Well, I think in some circumstances, fear does mitigate guilt, but it doesn't eliminate guilt. Fear is never an excuse to disobey God. To obey God requires courage, and we are not excused from showing that courage when it comes to obeying the Lord's word. C.S. Lewis has a marvelous comment about this. He talks about the role of courage as a virtue that enables us to uphold every other virtue. Let me read to you what he says. Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. A chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger when will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. Pilate was merciful till it was risky. It requires courage to obey God when obeying God seems to threaten everything and seems to put you in danger or seems seems to threaten something that you count precious and valuable. Lewis uses the term courage, and I think that's appropriate, but I'd like to use the term faith because godly courage is an expression of faith. Faith in God for the immediate circumstance. You could call that narrow faith. You face something that is fearful, are you going to obey God? That's where you need faith in the narrow situation where you say, you know what? God God can deliver me. God can deliver me. God can give me victory. I will trust God because God can do that. But also, not just faith in the narrow sense, but in the overarching sense of, even if God doesn't deliver me, God is still God, and I trust him. I believe in him. He may work things out in a way that I don't anticipate, and it may require me to walk through a valley, but I'll walk through it with God, and I'll be faithful to God. That's faith in this narrow, specific sense, but also faith in the larger, overarching sense. That's what Saul didn't have. That's why he was disobedient. But interestingly, that's the kind of faith his son, Jonathan, had. You can read about it in the very next chapter. Because while Saul is offering up this burnt offering, disobeying the word of the Lord, Jonathan heads off for some reconnaissance, just Jonathan and his armor bearer, just two, And he sees in the distance an outpost of Philistines. There are at least 20 Philistines there. And Jonathan has it in his heart to take the battle to them, two against 20 or more. And yet he is confident that God can bring the victory. Let's read what he says. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, Let us go over to the outposts of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I love the way he says these uncircumcised men. A little contempt. He throws a little contempt toward them. But then he says, perhaps the Lord will deliver us, fight for us, do a, bring a great victory. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. He doesn't know for sure, but he knows that God can save by many or by few. It can be by two or it can by, be by 2,000. It doesn't matter. God is God. So God can do it. That's that narrower faith. But even if he doesn't, Even if he doesn't, Jonathan is ready to take the battle to the Philistines. Do you see that? Perhaps the Lord will act. Perhaps faith will do astonishing things on a perhaps. So Jonathan has this courage inspired of faith, knowing that as he takes the battle to the Philistines, he may be the loser, he may die, but his whole life is in the Lord's hands and he trusts God." That's the kind of faith that his father, Saul, did not have. But that's the kind of faith it takes to serve God. And as it turned out, God gave them a great victory. Jonathan and his armor bearer attack. And God fought with them. There was an earthquake and the Philistines begin to panic and they begin to flee. And all Israel wins this great triumph by the power of God. But it was the faith of Jonathan, not Saul. We see so many stories of this in the Bible, of men and women who have faith in God, both for their immediate need, but also in the overarching sense. So in Babylon... After the exile, you have a Jewish community there. And many Jews were brought into governmental service. That was always a tricky thing. The way it can be a tricky thing for Christians today, in certain businesses and in public areas and in in government service, you can be put in a position where faithfulness to Christ puts you in jeopardy. Faithfulness of Christ can stand in the way of your advancement or even your continued employment. The Jews were in that position in Babylon. There were three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were in service and all was well, or so it seemed, until one day Nebuchadnezzar got it in his head that he would build a huge golden statue. It was perhaps inspired by a dream that had been interpreted as Nebuchadnezzar himself being the head of gold, that being the case, it may be this golden statue was of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So he sets up this statue and he expects everyone to bow down before it. But some troublemakers saw that these three young men, these Hebrew young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't conforming. They go to Nebuchadnezzar and said, King there are three who will not worship your God and will not bow down to your statue. So Nebuchadnezzar is furious and he decides that they will either submit or they will die. And you know all about that fiery furnace that heats up to seven times hotter than normal. He confronts these three young men and they have the courage of faith. Let's look at their words. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You see the faith, the courage born of faith. They are going to obey God even when their lives are on the line. They will do it because they know God can deliver them in in this moment of peril. But they also believe that God is God. So even if God doesn't, Our hands, our lives are in his hands, and we trust God. God will take care of us. All will be well. And of course, we know the story. They were thrown into the fire, and far from being consumed, they were delivered without their hair being singed, without the smell of fire upon them. Nebuchadnezzar himself looked down into the fire and was shocked, even terrified, because Three were thrown into the furnace and yet he saw a fourth one like unto the Son of God. (laughs) Oh, that's a good story. It's hard to not start preaching that one. But I want to stick with the point. The point being they had faith, that faith gave courage and that enabled them to obey God. That's the only way you can obey God when the chips are down, when the battle is around you, when the threat is imminent. It's the only way you can obey God, the courage born of faith. So there came a time when the king of Jerusalem was terrified. This was during the time when Israel had split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel or Ephraim. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And over the kingdom of Judah was a man named Ahaz. He was not a righteous king by any means, but he was the king by right. And the king of Israel aligned with the king of Aram to to form an alliance to remove Ahaz from the throne. They wanted to take over Judah, make it into a puppet state, and they had to get Ahaz out of the way. And so they they plotted and they had a plan and they would be moving against the southern kingdom very, very soon. Ahaz trembled at the thought. He started thinking, what can I do? How can I I meet this? Instinctively, he thought, I can turn to the Assyrian Empire, this great pagan nation, and they can defend me. The problem, though, was to do that, he would have to become a vassal state. He would have to worship Assyria's gods. He would have to compromise on his loyalty to God. But Ahaz was willing to do that. Isaiah comes to Ahaz, sent by God, to deliver a word to him, a word in this moment of peril, and a word that is important for all of us if we're going to serve God in difficult, challenging times. Here's what Isaiah said. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, say to Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And that really is the message of this message. If you will not stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. As God's people, we need to stand in our faith, faith on the word of God, and obey the word of God, to live out the word of God, whatever it might cost us, however hard it might be. Even if family, even if family gets angry at us for it, or friends exclude us, or there are great there's a great price to be paid in some other way. The Protestant Reformation is one of those great events in history that really changed the course of the entire world, certainly the Western world. All of us here have been impacted by that religious revolution. It happened just a little over 500 years ago. That is, it began a little over 500 years ago. An unknown monk in the Augustinian order named Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. These were theses that were intended for debate. It was a common thing for scholars. He was a scholar professor there at the University of Wittenberg. It was a common thing for them to nail theses in public places. The church door was one such public place. It was a kind of bulletin board. It was common for them to nail these theses for debate and for public discussion. He didn't expect it to become the beginning of such a, well, such a culture-shaking, world-shaking Renewal, but that's what happened. The Reformation began with Luther's revolt against the selling of indulgences in the Catholic Church. But it continued as Luther studied Scripture and got clearer and clearer on the gospel, especially the gospel according to Paul, as Paul emphasized the faith in Jesus Christ that justifies us before God. Luther began to preach that gospel and people were converted everywhere. It moved from power to power and it looked as if the Reformation would sweep everything away before it. But it wasn't long before opposition rose up. The religious powers that be began to exert their influence. And that influence in many cases of... It was dark and it was troubling. Luther, on a number of cases, had to hide for fear of his life. At other times, he put himself out publicly knowing it may be the end of his life. And so he's in the midst of this battle, this spiritual battle, this back and forth. And then the battle intensifies because not only does Luther have to battle with The religious powers of that day, but on the other side, there are some of his followers who become fanatics, and they go off into all sorts of directions. And so, the Reformation seems to be in danger of utter chaos. So, over the first 10 years, There's this seemingly great success. Then there's the pushback, and then there's the chaos. And this is weighing on Luther, who is always in the middle of some theological battle, always conscious that he could be killed at any time. In 1527, in April, he became terribly ill. He recovered from that, but not long after that, He fell ill once again and was certain that he would die. Those around him thought he would die as well. Miraculously, he recovered, though that entire year he was never entirely healthy. And it was a struggle during that year, anxiety over the state of the Reformation, but also depression, depression no doubt brought on by his bad health, but also by false friends, also by the troubles that he had to carry without relief for so long. Now, Luther was a a large personality, and he had large faults. But he also had one virtue that no one can deny. He was a man of faith. And you see it during that year. In August, the plague erupted in Wittenberg. As you might imagine, people started socially distancing real fast. People left the city. Luther stayed, convinced God wanted him there to take care of the sick. He opened up his home as a hospital. His wife was pregnant. Together, they ministered to those who were ill. His son fell ill. It seemed as if as if the plague was going to wipe out the city. But slowly it began to recede, and by the end of November, people began to recover, and mercifully, Luther's son recovered. But what a year it had been. And as he looked forward to the future, what did he see? He saw more conflict, and he saw an uncertain result. See, we look back and we see, oh, it's just a great, Triumph. But Luther didn't know what was going to happen, not for himself and not for the cause that God had called him to lead. It was at this time that his faith, his courageous faith, the faith that enabled him to obey the Word of God when everyone else would say, You've done enough. You've done enough. That faith was expressed in a hymn, one that he wrote, both the words and the music. You know the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I want us to reflect on Luther's testimony and witness. I've asked Art to come and sing it a cappella, and I want you to reflect on those words. Come on up, Art.
1: A mighty fortress is our God A bulwark never failing Our helper he amid the flood Of mortal ills prevailing For still our ancient foe Doth seek to work us woe. his craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be lose. Were not the right men on our side, the men of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his triumph. Truth is through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom be sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abide. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. The body they may kill God's truth abideth still kingdom
0: He do that. (laughs) What a witness of faith, faith that has courage to obey, no matter what the cost. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We're mindful that that Jesus came calling on us to follow, taking up our cross to follow. And Lord, that is what we want to do. We know, Lord, that you are God and that you can deliver us, Lord, whatever, whatever battle we face, you can deliver us. But we know, Lord, that whatever you choose to do, you are God and we can trust you. And Lord, it's in that faith that we wish to follow to follow faithfully. Lord, each one of us has our, own, has our own battle. Each one of us has to make that choice to follow. Would you give us grace to do it? Would you empower us to do it? That's our prayer. And would you touch the heart of those who need the Lord Jesus as Savior? Would you touch their heart now? Give them faith. Give them the courage of faith.